you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Studios. When you got word like, hey, there's a fire on the, on the 10 freeway, not far away from your business, what were you thinking? Uh, yeah, I actually woke up that morning and the first text said, hey, was that your business under the 10 freeway that caught on fire and shut the freeway down? Oh my God. And yeah, I panicked a little bit. And then the news had the address wrong. They said Elwood Street, which is my street. Last month, the 10 freeway was in critical condition after an arson fire burned more than 90 support columns of an overpass near Alameda Street. The repair job was fast. It took less than two weeks. Now, for most of us, things seem back to normal. But the ripple effects for some businesses along that corridor are still being felt. This is How to LA, the podcast that helps you understand this city better. I'm your host, Brian De Los Santos. The fire started in a pallet yard that spread to another, eventually scorching around eight acres around and underneath the 10 freeway. The fire affected a lot of businesses and highlighted issues, from safety concerns to violations around subletting with the so-called airspace lease program. It allows Caltrans to rent land underneath freeways to private companies. Yet for many small businesses, these locations served as a space of opportunity for people like mechanics, truckers, garment suppliers, and street vendors. We wanted to learn more about the good and the bad of operating a business underneath the freeway, and what might be some of the continuing effects of the 10 freeway fire. In early December, we went to Recycled Movie Sets, a business underneath the 10 on Elwood and Olympic. It's run by Chase White. By the way, his business was not involved in the fire. Busy day today, or? Uh, Yeah, every day is busy. Every day is busy. His lot is also home to a landscaping company, which uses it as a transfer facility for plants and sod. And near the plants are some beehives. Yeah, those are those are my bees. They moved into our set walls, and we just take them out and put them in boxes and try to find people that are interested in beekeeping. We spoke with Chase about the impact the fire has had on his business. And as it turns out, it's pretty major. He has to be out of his current space by December 31st. We'll get into the reasons why in just a bit, but we had a few more questions about his business first. So from what I understand, this is all from like movie sets, things that have been torn down from them? Yeah, so we're a landfill alternative. So when a production wraps, I mean, 99% of the time they dispose of everything. A small percentage of the time they put it into storage. Um, We get most of our stuff from storage. When they stop paying the bill for the storage or the show gets canceled, Then they throw it away, so we come in and beat the price for that. So we've collected these from productions, and then we make them available for sale or for rent to lower-budget productions. Uh, We also deconstruct materials and make them available to consumers. Uh, We get a lot of carpet, linoleum, 2x4s, lumber, plywood, things that have consumer value. So not all of the resources we collect go back to the film industry. They actually go to the community as a whole. 
Not only does recycled movie sets keep materials that can be reused out of landfills, they also provide job opportunities for people who need some help getting back on their feet. We're a for-profit business. We're a social enterprise, which means we support other nonprofits and their goals. Uh, we work with programs like the Midnight Mission, who help rehabilitate people that want to get off the street. Many of them haven't had jobs for a long time, so to reintegrate them into the workforce, they need to, in the very beginning, do the basic steps, learn to be on time. You know, what do you do while you're at work? How do you clock in and out? Uh, we also support programs like Homeboy Industries, Homeboy Recycling. You know, we go to them for labor when we can. We see doors, wood, we see steel. Give me a little bit of everything that what we see here. Uh, yeah, well, it's an outdoor space with no amenities. So first of all, we had to build our own break room and our own bathroom. Uh, luckily, this property already had a steel perimeter fence to discourage people from coming in here unsupervised. So we collect doors, windows, molding, carpet, linoleum, uh, huge steel structures, specialty things that are made for shows like the Emmys or the BET Awards. But we also have very simple sets that students might use for a bedroom or they might use to build an office or a castle or a cave. So we've curated this collection over the last 12 years of items that we think have reuse value or rental value. What has been your experience over the years working under the 10 freeway? Um, has it been mostly quiet? Has it been? I mean, one of the huge advantages of this space is that we have a natural roof 30 feet above us. So we get to work outside all day, but in the shade. You can feel the breeze right now pushing from the ocean. So it's really great to be able to be outside and shaded, but also this space allowed us to grow. I moved here from a 7,000 square foot facility, and this allowed us to take on more materials, to create more jobs, to have more space for our trucks and trailers to operate. Uh, as far as the space itself, you know, we're very fortunate that we have a huge perimeter fence, keeps our clients safe. Uh, there's always, always activity here. Hundreds of car accidents we've seen. Many, many fires on all corners, small and large. We had a tractor trailer fire incident a few years ago where it crashed off the freeway over here and burnt down some of our scenery. Oh, wow. And after that, you know, Caltrans was here and we put in sprinklers and upped our quantity of fire extinguishers and things like that. So now that you've set up this picture of like environment around us, uh, tell me how you lease this spot. Uh, this property is owned by Caltrans. It's called an airspace. So these spaces are around the city. Uh, they go up for auction. Uh, different groups of people can go in and bid on the properties for long-term leases. I'm actually a subtenant of someone who has a 20-year lease on this that will be ending soon. Someone gets the space from them at the auction, and then they have the ability to rent it out. Now, my property managers are very involved with our compliance, our safety. We've been here for seven years. The business has always been made out of wood and steel structures. You know, it's always been on our radar that, you know, this kind of incident could happen. These spaces are designed to help businesses grow. Uh, they're very cost effective. Um, I don't really, I can't really speak to how other businesses operate, but I see them. 
You know, there was a huge pallet yard fire down here several years ago that outlawed pallets being under the freeway and yet someone still did it and now my business suffers because of it. Explain, so, explain that right there. Like, why is your business going to suffer well, now? Well, we were given a 30 days notice on Friday, uh, which basically destroys this business. It's going to take 6,000 pieces of inventory and they'll get demolished because we can't move out of here that fast. The notice to vacate came from Caltrans to White's landlord, Conjun LLC. We can move a fair amount of stuff, but as you can see, we deal with very large structures. And it's hard to find a good warehouse space in Los Angeles, especially in such a short timeline. So we'll scale down, move our infrastructure, uh, try to hold on. One of the biggest challenges we face right now is that film production hasn't really ramped back up yet. So the timing is terrible. Normally we would have a lot more ability to donate these items to productions, to just give them to shoots to use. But ultimately, you know, a huge portion of this inventory uh, will go back into the landfill, which I've spent 12 years trying to avoid. They asked you to move out because you have wood and steel here. What specifically was it? Uh, the property managers weren't specific. They just gave us a 30-day notice. They said they were getting pressured by Caltrans because of the nature of our business. But, you know, it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction. We offered to put a 5,000-gallon water truck in here with 24-hour security to buy us more time, and they said that that wasn't even a reasonable request. So what do you do with that? A Caltrans spokesperson told us the reason it issued the notice to vacate was, quote, in response to the state fire marshal's inspection, finding open storage at that location in violation of the lease terms. This included storing combustibles and flammable items, which are prohibited from all airspace lease sites, end quote. The LA Fire Department inspected the site in late November and identified it along with 49 other spots as being similar to the location that erupted in flames under the tent. Chase's business and almost two dozen others were referred to the state fire marshal. If you were to have, let's say, leased a warehouse with the same amount of space, with the same amount of media, the, the locality of it, right? Because you're in downtown, you're able to move things from Hollywood to the west side to even the east side a little bit quicker than someone who was somewhere else in, in the county. Can you compare if someone's listening to this, okay, why didn't he think about moving into a warehouse years ago? Because it does seem like this brings opportunity to businesses that are not there yet or, are not, or can't be there yet, you know? Uh, this space was a great place to grow our business, to become a more established company. We've been here for seven years. It allowed us to grow, it allowed us to take on a massive amount of inventory in the beginning before we really had a rental business. The other great thing about this space is it has multiple entrances. We're not limited by the ceiling height. We're not limited by walls. You know, we have to work around these columns, but it lets this space be organic. It lets this inventory grow and expand or shrink where a building is very hard to operate in. As a business owner, can you tell me how hard it is to become a legit business in California to be able to move forward and have employees, have the right regulations. Understanding California compliance, I really feel it takes the lifetime of your business. I mean, fortunately, there are local resources between uh, small business associations and things like that if you take advantage of them. But each inspector comes in with a new set of ideas of how things should be. You know, one wants you to have 20 fire extinguishers and the other one wants you to have 10. Someone else comes through and says that 
you need to lock up your three propane tanks. And then another guy comes through later and says that if you have more than two, you need to be part of a special program. So a lot of this you learn from the inspectors that hopefully give you a little bit of an extra chance. You know, fortunately for us, our property managers have a lot of spaces and are very uh, diligent about being compliant and up to code. When you got word like, hey, there's a fire on the, on the 10 freeway, not far away from your business, what were you thinking? Uh, yeah, I actually woke up that morning and the first text said, hey, was that your business under the 10 freeway that caught on fire and shut the freeway down? Oh my God. And yeah, I panicked a little bit. And then the news had the address wrong. They said Elwood Street, which is my street. Mm -hmm. So then I really panicked, but it turns out it was at 14th and Lawrence. But it's, it's always been something that's been on our mind because yeah, some of our product is flammable, but a lot of it has a product on the back called FireTech, which helps reduce that. You know, we try to keep things spread out so that the fire can't jump. It's always been, you know, our biggest fear is what happens if we're the one that shut down the freeway and then it happened across the street. So it has been something that's been, you know, on our mind. When the investigation started happening with Caltrans, what were you thinking as well? Well, by then it's all too late. I mean, there haven't been inspectors here for three years. And one note on this, Chase recalled the last inspection being in 2021. But when we asked Caltrans, they said there was one more recent inspection in June of 2022. And now suddenly everyone's interested. I asked Chase what he thinks will be next for his business. I guess we'll be a phoenix that rises from the ashes. Yeah. We have a good infrastructure. We have a good long game. People need our resources. You know, they're not just meant for Los Angeles. My goal is to send these across the country to other markets where people don't have the ability to build this level of craftsmanship. You know, these are made by Hollywood artisans. And the reality is everything you've seen on television, it goes into the landfill. We've just happened to be a stopping point for some of the specialty stuff. Uh, and there's growing support for that. And as resources get more expensive, and as labor gets more expensive, the demand for rental scenery will return. As for questions many are raising in the wake of the 10 freeway fire, about whether leasing so-called airspace is a good idea at all, given the risks, there are benefits too. The revenue from renting them funds transportation projects. And Chase says there are other pros. There's an interesting thing that happens when someone sees an open space under the freeway and says, you know, we have lack of housing, we have lack of community gardens. We should do something with that space. And that's why these airspaces were created. And businesses like mine move in, they grow. And now we have this knee jerk reaction where everyone says, oh my God, there should be nothing under the freeway. And then a few years will go by and then people will look at the empty space under the freeway and say, hey, we should do something with that. That was Chase White, the owner of Recycled Movie Sets, located under the 10 freeway. A lot of other businesses in these spaces are part of LA's so-called underground economy, and many are run by immigrants. We'll learn more about that after the break. Stay with us. Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Pindarvis Harshaw, host of the Right Nowish podcast. Every week, I talk to the people who are creating art and culture and spreading it to the universe. As an artist, you always meet yourself. Every year, you're a different person. Essentially, we normalize a space where you can show up as your authentic self. Check out Right Nowish 
rooted in California's Bay Area, speaking to you. It's so many people of color, so many queer people. It's like I'm being celebrated in my fullness. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. And we're back. Whether you're talking about, you know, somebody selling paletas on the street or these types of, you know, more industrial type jobs when you're operating sort of under the table or behind closed doors or what have you, any little thing can always go wrong. That's Professor of Labor Studies at Cal State Dominguez Hills, Alfredo Carlos. We got in touch with him after the LA Times reported that many of the small businesses that had lost everything in the 10 freeway fire were operated by immigrants. Most had no insurance. They rented their spaces from Apex Development, who Caltrans says was subletting spaces in violation of its rental agreement and at excessively high rates. Caltrans says it does allow subletting in some cases, but it requires the department's approval that it meets their standards. I think one of the comments I saw on social media was like, why were these businesses given the opportunity to create business there, right? And under the freeway. But it's not uncommon here in Los Angeles for these types of businesses to pop up there. Tell me about that. Yes. So, I mean, it's about, you know, what's affordable, honestly. You know, Caltrans land, it subleases it to a company. The company subleases it, you know, to other small businesses. And so the reason that people set up shop there is because it's cheap enough for them to be able to set up shop. There's sort of a caveat to that is that they're able to set up shop without much regulation, uh, which benefits them, but then could also be dangerous, as was the case in this case. Um, but it's one of those because because of the type of businesses they are, like often immigrants, you know, they struggle to get the right permits. They have to write that have the right paperwork, and all of that costs money. And so these people that aren't, are entrepreneurs, you know, they're motivated. They have a business model that works. They're making money, but they can't do it through the you know through the normal mechanisms because it would just be like extremely expensive. Yeah. What are the types of businesses that you've seen, whether it was through the story of the 10 freeway or other, you know, businesses in in that economy? So, I mean, there's there's all kinds of businesses in the what you know what is referred to as the informal economy. You know, there's obviously in this case like mechanic shops. It was industrial, like you know, like recycling. But you know, in the informal economy, we're talking about you know food vending, service work. We're talking about domestic labor. We're talking about you know basically um, people that can't enter the normal job market, or they are in the normal job market, but they need something else to supplement their income. And that often means entering the informal economy. And putting on this hat of someone who may not understand the scene of it, like how it looks like, how it may feel maybe for some folks, someone might say, oh, but, you know, there are so many other employers that are hiring or why can't people get normal jobs? Yeah. What would you tell these folks? Uh, there's a couple of different reasons. So one is the just the personal satisfaction of owning your own business. I think everybody understands that. 
Secondly, it's not easy to enter a normal job, right? Most employers today uh, require E-Verify, which means you have to have a social security number or an ITIN number. Um, and you have to have all kinds of paperwork. Sometimes even to get paid, you need a bank account. To get a bank account, you need documentation. And so when I interview folks in the community, like on some of my research projects, they tell me that's the, the main thing is that they, they can't have regular jobs, which is why they're forced to do you know, domestic labor or they're forced to do service work that's often under the table because they can't access those jobs that are protected by you know, state regulations. Yeah, let's talk about um, the fire at the freeway and the fact that these immigrant entrepreneurs lost everything essentially, right? And maybe even are in debt because I saw a story that this mechanic had just finished repairing an SUV truck and now he's like, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to owe that money to that owner of that truck. Some of them didn't have, uh, you know, insurance or legitimate support, you know, can you paint a picture of the stress of what people go through, you know, when they operate in this way? Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, somebody selling paletas on the street or these types of, you know, more industrial type jobs, when you're operating sort of under the table or behind closed doors or what have you, any little thing can always go wrong, right? So in this case, it was a fire, but like, you know, say a state regulator comes through and says, hey, you know, I'm going to fine you, you know, $500 because, you know, you're placing liquids next to like pallets, right? Like that $500 is probably all they made in the week, you know, and then that that's how close people are to actually, you know, becoming homeless. Most Americans, not just even uh, undocumented ones, are $500 away from, you know, being on in the street. And so, like, when you add all this other stuff of, like, you know, immigration, like, potentially raiding your workplace, when you add, you know, the fact that you're actually dealing with, you know, thousands of dollars worth of equipment, you know, I can't imagine like what some of these folks are, are going through. And then it ends up being the informal economy that ends up sort of also uh, helping them, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, I talked to my students about how communities usually show up for folks. Um, and it's unfortunate that it has to be community that, that is kind of the backup insurance, right? That the regular state won't protect them, that there isn't protections for folks like this. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that like, you know, when, when you see those paleteros who get beat up sometimes because of racism, right? Like the community will crowdsource money to make sure that that person is taken care of. Um, but we don't just do that with the informal economy. We do that with healthcare. I do want to take a, a moment to like capture how big of a part the informal economy is as a part of California because we have so many people who move here, not just from other countries, but también from other states, um, finding their footing here, they're figuring out what to do, whether you're selling things online or you're on the street selling paletas, like you said. How big is the informal economy here in California? If I had to give it a number, I'd probably say at least 10 to 15 percent of the California economy, particularly because we know that the main economy in California outside of agriculture is service work. Even though there's formal service work, and so you have you know like people selling on the street. Yeah. Over the last 10 to 15 years, you've seen way more like street vendors. I think generally people want to be in a restaurant. I think that's kind of the dream to have a brick and mortar place, but they can't because it's just completely unaffordable to rent space. You have, you know, people who work in the gig economy, which is formal, but kind of informal because you're a contractor. It's hard to study also. Like you can't ever really figure out like how much because it's informal for a reason. Yeah. Some of these folks don't want to be, you know, counted. surveyed or reported. Right. Yeah. 
Gotcha. Um, So tell me how you've managed to have a pulse on what this is and essentially also why you started to have this interest in in covering this in your studies. Yeah, I mean, part of it is personal. Uh, I grew up working poor. My mom was a garment worker and I wanted to understand like why if, you know, immigrants and if working people are the backbone of the economy, why are they treated so poorly? And so when I got to college, I started my interest was in trying to understand working people. And how different groups of working people like got treated differently. Like, you know, why did, you know, uh, black and brown workers get, you know, why were they always historically the last hired, first fired? You know, wage theft is something that massively affects specifically immigrant folks, but like working class people, especially undocumented people. But more importantly, I used to be a former labor organizer. And so I've done a lot of community organizing. And my interest in what I do now is how do we find solutions to these systemic problems. And so one of these things is, you know, if like in this case, the fire, right? Caltrans is leasing it to this private company. Well, why don't we figure out a way to lease it to a community owned company that leases it to entrepreneurs and make sure that everybody has the correct paperwork and that everybody has insurance and like, you know, with support of the city subsidizing that it turns into a community project that benefits jobs and creates jobs in the community for people in the community. And it keeps money here instead of, you know, like whoever the private company was just kind of like not even really playing any role outside of just collecting profit. Mm-hmm. Can you also set the stage of how, there's so much red tape to go through the correct channels to become a business in Los Angeles and California that you people have to resort to this kind of like going around and navigating elsewhere. Um, I'm just thinking about like, so, you know, I grew up undocumented and have DACA now, but like even just thinking of, of creating my own business, I'm like, how do I even start it? I know I can with a um, tax yeah. ID number. Many people don't know how to do that. Yeah. The rules are there and the regulations are there to protect people. And we know that. But at a certain point, they become really cumbersome. I think we have a a penalizing system that you're not doing it right, so we're going to shut you down. Or you're not doing it right, so we're going to give you a grade of C rather than giving people an opportunity to kind of fix the issue. Um, And in terms of red tape, I mean, there's so, you know, you got to get, you know, you have to file your LLC, right? That's that's a whole process. If you don't know a lawyer, uh, you can probably do it online. And I actually figured it out because I had to do it for my nonprofit. But like... As a person with a PhD, it took me a while to figure out how to do it and what paperwork to send where. And sometimes I sent the wrong paperwork and it got sent back. And so it's just a whole headache. That doesn't include like, you know, permits if you're doing a specific kind of job. And also, like, I haven't even talked about how every one of those steps costs money. And so at the end of the day, you know, like people who are who are engaged in these, you know, if you're mad at, you know, these workers for, for not following state regulations, be mad at the fact that they can't exist in a regular mechanic shop. I'm sure they would love to be able to pay for insurance so they don't have to worry about, you know, oh, I, I owe somebody a car because their car burned down, right? But they're not able to because they can't make enough to make a living. And part of that isn't like, well, maybe they make good money in their business, but on the other end, it's coming out the pocket because everything's super expensive. And so at the end of the day, like I think all of us, wherever we're at, whatever economy we fit in, we're just trying to survive. We're just trying to make it and to lead a, a quality of life um, that is good and that gives us a little bit of dignity. And so people are in those types of economies, informal, as a last resort, honestly. If you had a, like a magic paintbrush and paint a picture for folks that could possibly help 
specifically these type of businesses that operate this way in LA, in California. You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier of creating this like community-based space. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, so for me, like the magic that if I had all the money in the world I would put into is two things, worker ownership. So how, how do we create businesses that are owned by the workers like collectively, democratically, so they, they share in the in the the profits that that are being made, so that they have enough money to pay for insurance, and then also community owned spaces. So like you know rent is really high, yeah. and so the response for me to that is for people that have funds, for people that have creativity. How do we get the funds in place to allow people to actually co own like housing? And so there's a couple of examples of that in LA. There's um, five or six different community land trusts. Community land trusts are basically where people come together. They've raised a bunch of money to buy out land for different purposes. Historically, it's always been kind of like parks and like green space, but like it's starting to turn to housing where people are co-owners of their dwelling, their unit. Something I keep coming back to in my mind is you're talking about housing when we're talking about business because it all kind of like goes back yeah. to one important thing, which is expensive housing in California, in Los Angeles particularly, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's, so it's, you know, it's the main cost, whether it's you're trying to rent a space for a business, whether you're just trying to like live. At the end of the day, you engage in the economy because you need to pay those costs of living, that one being the most expensive. All right, Alfredo, thank you so much for coming in today. No, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Alfredo Carlos, professor of labor studies at Cal State Dominguez Hills. We'll be back here tomorrow, so make sure you check us out. Remember, we're here every weekday telling you all about your lovely city. We'll see you mañana. This episode was produced by Tony Morales and Monica Bushman. Our other team members include Erica Washington, Evan Jacoby, Victoria Alejandro, and Megan Botel. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.